I want to welcome you today. Uh, if you're new here, my name is Pastor Joseph Bianca. I'm assistant pastor here. I want to welcome you to City Reformed Presbyterian Church. Um, today is uh, Mother's Day, which is also the race for the cure, and you will notice our children are already getting up, and they are free to be dismissed for Children's Church. Uh, so I do, again, just want to welcome you in the name of Christ. We've been preaching through a sermon series in Nehemiah, and we're going to continue that sermon series today, so you will know that I am preaching exegetically because I didn't make this sermon about mothers, because <laughs> it is the next uh, passage in the sermon series we are preaching through. We're going to meet Nehemiah today, starting in verse 9, and Nehemiah has arrived after nearly four months of travel, finally he arrives in Jerusalem to begin this work of rebuilding. So let's read page 7 of your bulletin, and our response at the end will be, thanks be to God. Beginning in verse 9, and then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. And so I went to Jerusalem and I was there for three days. And then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night, by the valley gate, to the dragon spring, and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down, and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. And then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing and had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. And then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruin with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. What does it look like for the church of Jesus Christ to prosper? I believe that's the closest application we're going to glean from our text today. What is prosperity for the church of Jesus Christ? 
You know, prosperity is a funny thing. There is God's version of prosperity, and then there is our version of prosperity. God's version of prosperity, and the same is true for Nehemiah, is about God's kingdom. Our version of prosperity is about our kingdom. All through this passage, Nehemiah is concerned about God's kingdom, particularly the rebuilding of the wall of the kingdom. And he gives careful inspection to the wall, careful planning and preparation for the building of the wall. And when he is faced with adversity, he appeals to the God of heaven. Let me share a fantasy with you. What would prosperity look like for me if I was about building my kingdom? I would have a house, isolated, but not too far from the city. I would have a creek running behind my house, and it would be filled with trout. I would have no neighbors near me within seeing distance. My garage may be bigger than my house. It would be two stories tall and have more tools in it that I can reasonably use. Both of our families would live in Pittsburgh and they would be nearby. And I would basically live the life of a retired man on a farm, but 10 minutes from the grocery store. Now, that is a fantasy if I were to build my own kingdom. God has had different plans for me. I am a city pastor in a city house, and I have to drive an hour to go fishing. We're not particularly great fishing. And our garage holds one car. How about you? What is your fantasy? I want you to think about this throughout the sermon of the areas of your life you may be conflating with the idea of God's kingdom and your kingdom, the areas that you may even attribute God's prosperity to your kingdom as you ignore the broken walls and the burned gates of God's church. We're going to explore these ideas today through the eyes of Nehemiah. We're going to look at Nehemiah's heart, particularly the the first thing you see when you arrive His heart is concerned about God's kingdom, and the first thing you see is the broken destruction of God's kingdom. But what we'll see today is that not only is just building the kingdom, the wall, his main concern, but he's concerned about how he goes about the work of building those walls. He makes an inspection, he plans the work, and when he faces adversity, he appeals to the God of heaven. Christians are about God's kingdom but we are completely dependent on God's power. So let's follow Nehemiah through these three points today. The inspection of the wall, the planning and preparation to build, and the facing adversity and embracing of the God of heaven. So let's look first at the inspection. One of the first themes uh, we read in this passage is this repeated emphasis on the inspection of the wall of Jerusalem. The inspection of the wall was important for Nehemiah so that uh, when he roused the Israelites for the work ahead of them, he could give them a competent plan. He knew what he was talking about uh, and that he had a deep understanding of the work that was to be done. Um, But it was more for Nehemiah than just being a competent leader. It was a, a personal thing for him. So twice we read language in verse 13 and 17 
of Nehemiah describing the destruction. The walls broken down, the gates burned by fire. It's a very descriptive and a personal picture for Nehemiah. We know earlier in the book that it says he wept and mourned for days when he heard of the destruction of these walls and these gates burned. For Nehemiah, the inspection of the wall was comparable with taking an inspection of the hearts of the people of God. He did not weep because blocks were destroyed and wood was burned. He wept because of what it meant about the state of the heart of the people of God and their relationship with him. So what? We don't have a wall to build. We don't have a temple to erect. But we have a kingdom. Or rather, more properly put, God has a kingdom and we live in it. Jesus speaks about the kingdom of God continually throughout the Gospels. In fact, he speaks about the kingdom of God 126 times in the Gospels. The kingdom is not physical but spiritual. No longer just in Israel, but a kingdom that is to be expanded over the whole world. A kingdom that has come and a kingdom that is coming. Jesus brought the kingdom and by his spirit he is bringing the kingdom. He calls us to participate in this kingdom building in Matthew 26 at the end of the gospel. He looks at his disciples and the last thing that we read is he says, Go therefore and make disciples of every nation. Make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, obeying everything I command you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So while we do not have a physical wall of the kingdom of God to rebuild, we have certainly many walls in the church of God that need rebuilding. The question I believe for us is, are we willing to take an inspection? of the church of Jesus Christ. If we are, I believe, we're going to find amazing things that God has done. We're going to see vibrant ministry, people change, societies transformed. But we're also going to find places that have been destroyed, left in ruin, burned by fire. So you know that we are a Presbyterian church. If you're new here this morning, you might not know that we are a Presbyterian church. We're a particular brand of Presbyterian. We are uh, the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America. Presbyterian means elder, from the Greek presbyteros, meaning that we're elder-ruled, teaching and ruling elders. But you may not know that we have something called a presbytery. A presbytery. And a presbytery is where the elders of all the various churches in our local region called the Pittsburgh Presbytery get together four times a year to do the business of the church. We met about a month or so ago, and I want to just give you a sense of what our presbytery is doing. A year or so ago, the Committee for Church and Pastoral Care of our presbytery on whom, with, on whom the two of our, on whom? Two of our uh, elders served, um, Pastor Matt Kerber and Pastor John McCombs, that committee helped our presbytery to take an inventory uh, or an inspection. They presented the presbytery uh, with issues of racism that was committed in the history of Pittsburgh 
and in the history of the church in Pittsburgh against our African-American brothers and sisters. Just this past presbytery, our discipleship committee of the presbytery has taken up the mantle to not just leave it as an inspection, but to go and to actually seek out other African-American church leaders and to begin active discussion of what racial reconciliation would look like in Pittsburgh. All of this comes at the prompting of our General Assembly two years ago to make an inspection, to take an inventory of the way that our denomination may or may not have committed past racial sin. So look, there is work that is happening that most of you didn't even know was happening. An inspection being made by leaders you don't know who are caring for you. And those leaders are preparing a work for us to do. Now, racial reconciliation is a piece of the puzzle of the work of God that he's prepared for his church. I don't use it to make this sermon about racial reconciliation, but to offer a picture of what it looks like for a leader to go and to inspect the walls of the church of God. There are many other walls that need inspected, and there are many ministries in our church that participate in the work of building. Jim mentioned some of them earlier. I am thankful for those who work uh, supporting 40 Days of Life and Women's Choice Network. I'm thankful for men and women who fight actively week in, week out in our uh, New Hope group and our Women at the Well group. I'm thankful for uh, the discipling of those who would disciple men and women in our church for the Women's Council, for Sunday school teachers, for community group leaders who joyfully take up the labor I could uh, spend all day here going through a list of ministries, and I won't do that. You get the idea. The point is that there are godly men and women in this church who see the areas that are broken down, and they're saying, I will take up the call and actively rebuild God's kingdom. So I have a question I'm going to ask you again and again in this sermon. Are you about building God's kingdom Or are you about building your kingdom? Is your life, your family, your hopes, your dreams primarily concerned with the building or rebuilding of God's kingdom or your kingdom? I believe the way we begin to answer this question is the way Nehemiah did with the wall. It begins with an inspection, maybe of our own hearts, maybe corporately. In Pittsburgh, we say it needs fixed. But you do not know what needs fixed if you don't know what is broken. So let's look then at the planning of this work. This is our second point. Verse 17, Nehemiah says, Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Now, at first reading... You might say to yourself, derision does not seem like the best reason to build a wall. Is Nehemiah embarrassed? Does he not want people deriding, laughing at him? But let me remind you of what Jerusalem was supposed to be to the nations. Genesis 12, God made a covenant with Abraham, and he called Abraham and his lineage to be made into a great nation, to be blessed in order that that nation would be a blessing to the nations. It's a central theme in the mind of every ancient Israelite. 
And so for Nehemiah, the derision is not embarrassment, it is shame. Shame that the people of God look nothing like the people of God, let alone that they're a blessing to the nations. So part one of the way Nehemiah prepares the people is to remind them of their identity that because they are God's people, because that is who they are, they must live and act as God's people that Israel would be a blessing to the nations. Part two of the encouragement is more positive. Verse 18, he says, And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also the words that the king had spoken to me. He encourages them first that God's good hand was upon them, that comforting, guiding hand that Matt preached about last week. But second, that the king of Persia was supporting their effort. That's a big deal, to have the king of Persia support you. It's a lot of motivation. He's calling them to take up their identity as God's people. The presence of God's hand is upon them in the support of the king of Persia, the world power at that time. And so they respond, verse 18, and they say, let us rise up and build So they strengthened their hands for the good work. These people responded, yes, we will build. And not only that, we will prepare ourselves for the building, the strengthening of our hands. Jesus said something very similar in Luke chapter 14. He said, for which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, he has laid a foundation. He's not able to finish in all who are around him mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. So look, I love building things. If I am not actively pastoring, I will be found building something. Five years ago or so now, I got into woodworking, and I'll give you a pro tip if you get into woodworking. Uh, When I first started woodworking, I would just take the lumber and put it together and try to build something, and I would find out that it did not fit together well. I would build things that are crooked and not quite straight. And I learned very quickly that before you begin building, you actually have to take each piece of wood and you have to plane and joint the wood. Dan Essig knows about this. Which means that you have to make it square and straight and plumb. So that when you build, you build something that is square and straight and plumb. I'll give you a more apt illustration. I, was, I used to rock climb. I would like to again. But when I would rock climb at the gym, they had these uh, hand-strengthening bars, which are like pull-up bars, but you can only put your fingertips on them. And you would hang on them and pull up, and you just hang there until your hands gave out. And you do it over and over and over and over again, and it would strengthen your hands. Today... Brothers and sisters, we need both the proper encouragement, which we have because we have Christ, and the proper strengthening for the work that is to be before us. So I'm going to ask you a similar question to those that Nehemiah raises to the Israelites. First, is your motivation for working because you are a child of God? Is that why you work? Are you motivated to work, to live out your calling to the nations because you are God's chosen and precious people? Second, are you encouraged to build 
Because you have a divine affirmation that God is at work. Do you believe that the kingdom work he has called you to, he has promised to make succeed? Third, are you willing to strengthen your hands? What does it look like to strengthen our hands? I believe that it is at least participating in word, sacrament, and prayer, the means of grace. These are the basic building blocks of a healthy Christian diet. If you have prayer without the word or the word without the sacraments or sacraments without prayer is like having diet without exercise. You might get on for a little while, but there will not be lasting change. You need to eat well and strengthen your Christian muscles. At the least, word, sacrament, and prayer, but I'll give you some others. How about fellowship, the fellowship of the saints? Spending time with believers, maybe those particularly more mature in Christ than you. How about service? We have amazing deacons who need your help and they have more than enough work for you to do. Service grows our hearts spiritually strong. How about evangelism? Do you know that if you are more blessed as you share the gospel than you realize? That it sharpens your communication, your understanding in your own heart, your dependence upon Jesus by faith. I could go on, but you get the point. Are we willing to count the cost and strengthen our hands for the good work before us? Now let me ask you again, if your answer is no, I am not willing to prepare. Let me ask you again, whose kingdom are you about? I want to make a caveat here as well. I've been a pastor long enough that those who are sitting here who serve most faithfully in the church feel the most guilty when I say that. And there are people sitting here who would quickly excuse those words as well. But for the handful of people who would feel the most guilty, you need to hear something very important. Perhaps the main way that you need to strengthen your hands for the good work of the church is to rest. To rest. I'm going to continue pushing the idea of building God's kingdom, but please hear this. Some of you desperately need rest. And that's okay. That's not not strengthening your hands. So regardless of what category you fall into, are you about the building of the kingdom of God? Now, if you are, what happens when we face adversity? What happens if we go about it and adversity comes and it will come? And this is our third point. We embrace the God of heaven. All Christians who are faithful to God's call on their life will face adversity in kingdom building. All of us. This is uh, for two reasons in our text today. First, Nehemiah teaches us that there are natural enemies where there is the physical expansion of God's kingdom. There are always going to be natural enemies where there is the physical expansion of God's kingdom. But second, there is a spiritual enemy that underlays every natural enemy. I want you to notice the repetition in verse 12, verse 13, and verse 15 in the night. In the night. Why is Nehemiah sneaking out in the night to go and make an inspection of the wall? 
Why, verse 11, does he say, I told no one of what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem? I believe it's because Nehemiah knows enemies are coming. He knows enemies are coming, and he does not need to provoke more enemies to come faster than they are already coming. On the one hand, there is Sanballat and Tobias who will continually be be enemies to Nehemiah throughout the book. And on the other hand, we would be remiss to not remember that there is a greater enemy that underlies these enemies, which is the devil. Where God's work abounds, the devil will be near trying to destroy that work. We cannot forget there are spiritual things at play. Christians, I believe we can take wisdom here from Nehemiah first, is to not provoke enemies where we do not need to provoke enemies. Christians have been guilty of this. I have been guilty of this. Nehemiah kept it secret until he couldn't any longer. Verse 19, it says, when they heard of it. But second, to be aware that provocation will come because we have a great enemy. That when Jesus comes again, will be slain, but until that day, he's on the prowl. And he will try to disrupt God's plans. There are ways of building God's kingdom or preparing to build that we should not announce it to our enemies. Ways that it is right to start in secret. I believe if you think back on many Christian movements that were unhelpful, there were many. You can think of ways they might have provoked enemies unnecessarily. There are many Christian movements that might have started in secret that have been very powerful and life-changing. I don't want to call them out, so I won't name them, but I'll leave it to your imagination. I want you to think about yourself, though. How about you personally? Your speech, your action, your character. Have there been ways that maybe you have provoked enemies as a Christian, unnecessarily? Are there ways that maybe you have fueled the fire for enemies to come against you? So on one hand, don't provoke your enemies, but on another, the text says 19, eventually these enemies got wind of what was going on. Verse 19 says that Sanballat and Tobias and Gershom jeered at us and despised us. Now, if you realize who these guys are, you'll recognize that this is a lot more fearful than just reading a few names in the Bible. These guys are most likely leaders of the land of Samaria, a huge land, a world power, and they do not like the idea of broken Israel being rebuilt, especially a protective defensive wall. Verse 10, more than that, they hate the idea of the Israelites becoming strong. So how do we respond to adversity? I want to focus on Nehemiah's response here in verse 20. He said to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build. So not only is his point bold, but it is in the right order. I want you to think about it. Remember, Nehemiah comes his four-month journey into Jerusalem with a letter from the king of Persia. I mean, he had every legal right to build this wall. If I was Nehemiah, I probably would not do what he did right there. I would probably take out my letter and look at 
Sanballat and uh, Tobias and Gershom and say, you can't do anything. I can legally build here. Deal with it. But my guess is that Nehemiah knows that these enemies don't care about that letter. More than that, he knows that ultimately the letter is paper, but his God is forever. And so he appeals to spiritual things. He sees the spiritual things going on, and he says, the God of heaven will make us prosper. How do we face adversity? And the answer is we embrace the God of heaven. I think many Christians inadvertently, accidentally fall into believing what is called the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel, if you have not heard it before, is a false gospel. The prosperity gospel says that God is about building my kingdom. Making me happy. Giving me the things I want if I'm obedient to him. The gospel of the Bible is about building God's kingdom. Pleasing our king, giving him the worship he deserves offering sacrifice and service because we love the king. That's our motivation. Many of us can fall into believing, I can fall into accidentally believing this prosperity gospel, this false gospel, believing that the Bible is primarily concerned with my happiness, my prosperity, and Nehemiah gets it right. He claims prosperity because God is about rebuilding his heavenly kingdom. Let me tell you a gospel truth. God will build his kingdom. God will build his kingdom. And he doesn't need me. And he doesn't need you, but he delights to use us. You see, when you hear language in verse 20, like we his servants will arise and build, maybe your heart recoils a bit inside of you. Maybe you're thinking, I don't like the idea of the kingdom being about God and not about me. Maybe you're thinking, the idea of my whole life being oriented towards God's kingdom makes me feel forgotten, left out. Will there be anything left for me? And the answer to that is remember the king you serve. Remember the king you serve. If you remember the king you serve, you would not ask the question, what about my kingdom? Will there be anything left for me? You would not ask these questions because you remember the character of the king you serve. Let me remind you of his character. Psalm 103, 8 to 12, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He will not always accuse nor does he treat us as our sins deserve. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. That is the character of the king you serve. Nehemiah knew this king. He knew the God of heaven, and he trusted him to prosper Nehemiah's work in the building of his kingdom. Brothers and sisters, we know this king even more fully today. We don't have a king like the kings of this world. We don't have a king like Artaxerxes of Persia. We don't have a king like any governor of any country or ruler today. We have a servant 
king. We have a God who humbled himself, who met us where we are, who became a man and walked the earth alongside us. We have a king who so loved us that he would send his only son to die for us in our place. We have a king whose good work, his work is counted to us on our behalf because we could not do it because we were not strong enough. We have a king who is powerful, who conquers death himself. If you knew the king, you would serve him gladly, not begrudgingly. So I have a question for you. When you look at your life, when you ask, what is my life about? Is it about my kingdom or God's kingdom? But there's actually a better question. Do you know the king? Do you know the king? I believe if you know the king, if you know Jesus, if you know his love for you, you will be courageous to go where he calls you. You will be courageous for the work ahead of you And more than this, when adversity comes, as it came for Nehemiah, you will claim the same words, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And you'll look at evil, and you you will say, but you have no portion, nor claim, nor right in God's kingdom. So maybe today is the first day you have heard of this king. Maybe today is the first day that you have heard that the king of the heavens and the earth, of all of creation, loves you. That he desires relationship with you. Maybe you've come to church for the first time today and you have heard the king of the Bible. Not not one that's just angry with you, but that puts himself in your shoes, that takes the sin on himself for your behalf. Maybe that's the first time you've heard of this this today, this king, and I invite you into God's kingdom. You are welcome. You have a heavenly father who loves you, who calls you in, who invites you home, but the gate to the kingdom is through Christ. You have to know him. If this is new to you, would you pray even now silently in your hearts, or later when you go home, that this king would be your king? Would you pray that his son would be your savior? And would you pray that his spirit would abide in you? For those of us who have believed, who are actively participating in the work of God's kingdom, I would highly encourage us to rely on the king, to look to the God of heaven, to embrace him, to not do the work by our own strength, but to rely on the strength of the power of his spirit who abides in your hearts. And he promises that he will make his church prosper. Amen. Let's pray.